right, welcome back to another episode of the Ministry of Pod. Today I'm joined by Kazimir. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Thanks for inviting me. So today I want to talk to you about two things. I want to talk to you about foreign affairs, and then we can pivot. We can talk a little bit about intelligence. Sound good? Sounds good. All right. First up, foreign affairs. This is a really fast moving time in Euro foreign affairs, as I would characterize it. It's a really fast moving time in Euro foreign affairs, as I would characterize it. In the last 70 days, we've seen four PNGs and two treaties removed, a new treaty and a partridge in a pear tree. Can you break this down for our audience? What, what is your perspective here on the larger trends? Well, that's a big question. This isn't the only fast-moving time in Europa's history, for sure. But I think it is a significant one, and we'll look back at this as a major turning point in the region's history, kind of regardless of what the specific outcome of all these changes is, I think. What would you say is historically comparable in, in Euro history? I think around... 2011 to 2014, when Europea was first establishing the independent sphere, positioning itself as a rival to the United Defenders League, I think that would be comparable. Of course, around that time, there was also the introduction of the new uh, sinkers, which played a role in all of this. That's right. I remember I was president of Euro just before this period picked off, and to give the listeners a sense of how far we were from a true independence perspective. I actually outsourced our entire military affairs to the military head of unknown, just because we did not have in-house capabilities of leading our own military operations, or at least that was my perception at the time. And obviously that looking back at that, that was something that we were like, wow, that is not something we would have done in modern Euro. Yeah, it's definitely a completely different perspective. And I think that we're coming on changes similar to that, where we'll look back and think, wow, we really did things differently in the you know late 2010s compared to now. How exactly that will play out and what exactly the differences are is a little bit up in the air. Uh, but the winds of change are here, as you, uh, as you noted. And, and I think we'll be able to make that big contrast in six to eight months time so that soon you think that we are going to be solidified into the the where we arrive to in six to eight months from now we'll be looking back yeah i mean think about where we were six months ago right i think we were just barely coming to terms with the fact that lots of things are changing there was a lot of serious discussion about the frontier stronghold update around that time of course, that started almost a year ago, but picked up toward the end of last year, aka about six months ago. Mm -hmm. And now it's almost like these topics are so normal that, that people are almost tired of them. It's like, it's like old hat, old news, you know, is which is interesting because it's probably one of the most significant and exciting times in the region's history. So what is old news in your mind? What's your perception of Euro thinking this is old news, that we just are ripping up a bunch of treaties, that Sopo's going around with a lighter through the archives? No, I, I think that that's still novel. Um, 
but discussions of the frontier stronghold update uh, changes to military policy i think that people are used to those now uh, and don't see them as especially novel or interesting anymore until of course you know some something new pops up do you think that part of this is that i'm going to try a metaphor here foreign affairs is a muscle that a region flexes internally you build up institutions and knowledge within your community about where the nation state's gameplay is and what mechanics you can use to better position yourself relative to your competitors is thinking that okay frontier stronghold is maybe boring maybe something we talk about all the time we have intelligence committee senate is robustly discussing these different options we have political parties talking about these things is it that a good thing that we're actually flexing these muscles a lot or is it would you push back against that I think it's a good thing. Europe has had a long-standing issue getting people interested and invested in foreign affairs, partly because we're such a domestic-focused region, like culturally, and that includes our political culture, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think times like this, just like the period we were mentioning earlier in the early 2010s, really motivate people to get involved and learn the ropes, and that's a good thing for the region overall. It's another question whether we can capitalize on that in the long term or whether it'll kind of return to normal uh, like it did before, where we're mostly domestically focused again. In terms of actual like foreign policy strategy and achieving goals, regardless of the political culture of the region, I also think it's a good thing. not really sure how to elaborate on that, but, but I would agree that uh, this approach, building up internal systems or... Institutions. Sure. Yeah. And then applying them abroad. Well, there That's is never a- there is seem to, there does seem to be a trend where you know the EBC is interviewing foreign leaders. EBC Radio is more outward facing. Culture is hosting weekend games with allies and friends. It seems like a lot of our institutions and our our, our infrastructure that we built up that was very domestically focused has almost been turned outward and I think exposing is probably not the right way that I'm trying to go about this, but we're sort of using those muscles trying in a a foreign affairs perspective rather than domestic. That isn't unprecedented per se. I think that there are lots of examples of that in the last few years, Uh, but it's definitely more concentrated than it has been in the recent past. Maybe it's more concentrated than it has been in a long time. I don't know. Part of that is a credit, of course, to the current president who's kind of organizing all of this with his cabinet. And part of this is also, like you said, this is a time where things are changing very quickly and we might look back eight months from now and it's important to capitalize on opportunities that you do have in the short term to put yourself in the best position for the next era. That's so important. It's it's really the most important thing. If you don't latch on to things early in this game then it's almost like you don't get any benefit at all um certainly you don't come out on top i was gonna say that this is a first mover problem well the almost the opposite the, the, all the benefit is in the first mover in in this example that you're describing yeah and you could think of really dozens of historical examples um that bear this out i mean the introduction of the new sinkers was one of them right there was a big rush to be uh, the one to establish a native government there. 
Um, and really, nothing's changed since that initial rush. The people who were in power then are still largely in power now. Uh, Cyrus is a little bit complicated, but you see a lot of the same people there who were there from the beginning. It's really funny because I remember that update really well when uh, the Osiris Balder revelation occurred and everybody was rushing in to create their IRC governments, literally old school IRC governments. Yeah, yeah, definitely interesting times. And I think that if and when this Frontier Stronghold update drops, we'll have a similar period. Not where there's, you know, two huge prizes to, to try to win, but a similar rush where there will be lots of new regions, not new players to the game per se, but new power players who were previously not very important will rise up in these new frontier regions. It'll be very interesting. Lots of opportunities to take hold of. Uh, but even if the frontier stronghold update doesn't happen for some reason, or if it's delayed or if it's significantly uh, uh, diminished in terms of the amount of changes it makes. Uh, there's still so much going on and so many opportunities in the near future that we're still going to have exciting times. And so I want to actually turn a little bit because you mentioned Balder. You currently serve in Balder as I'm going to butcher this name as the, are you the stats minister? Is that how I would? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Stats minister. It, it makes it sound like you're the guy with the abacus, but that doesn't, that's not exactly, <laughs> no. could you tell me just a little bit more about what you do? Sure. Well, it's, it's really just uh, the Norwegian word for prime minister. So I'm, I'm the head of the, of the uh, government in Balder. I boss around the cabinet ministers, that sort of thing. And your, how much role do you have in choosing Balder foreign affairs? Uh, there's a little kind of foreign affairs council that consists of uh, me, the people I choose, and then uh, the king, Northeast Somerset, and the crown prince, uh, Buzzy. So throw on your Baldur hat for a minute. You got it on? Uh, it's on. So how does Baldur see this shifting nation-states landscape that you've laid out for us? The perspective is obviously somewhat different from Europia because Europia is a, is a UCR. It has a big, churning political culture that uh, incentivizes and lives off of activity, right? Mm -hmm. um, and Europia doesn't have the same sorts of security concerns that a GCR has. So the perspectives are, are, of course, going to be somewhat different. But that being said, the way I describe it isn't going to sound different. Like Balder is looking at these opportunities. Balder understands that this is a turning point where many things that were taken for granted, of course, Balder also canceled a couple of treaties. A lot of things that were taken for granted in foreign affairs, foreign policy relationships uh, have changed, and we're looking for new opportunities. So at the surface level, it sounds similar. Of course, the details is where all of the differences between our two regions come to bear. So from an institutional perspective, you mentioned that Balder has this foreign affairs council, you have a king, so you have a more, you don't have as much transition in government as Euro does, where Euro has a fully democratic system of government, except for the vice chancellors when the chancellors, but uh, they don't really, the, the security concerns are different. 
and that motivates that. Yeah, the the royal family, the the king and the princes, they're really the security council equivalent. Sure. In in democratic GCRs like the East, well, I mean, Baldur is a democracy functionally, but in republic uh, GCRs like the East Pacific, like the North Pacific, like the South Pacific, the government and the delegate are all elected, but there's this unelected body of security councillors, guardians, depending on the region, who just stay in power with their influence and uh, enforce the, re- the regional votes, you know, and uh, expel potential violators of endorsement laws and that sort of thing. So the royal family in Balder uh, has that function. It exists to secure the region on site uh, through its world assembly influence. And it also has political functions that are a little bit broader than what security councils in Republic, Republican GCRs are. Broader in the sense that the royal family does have input in Baldur's policy and it appoints the Stots minister on the advice of, of the parliament and that sort of thing. Do you think that this is a more stable form of government? I mean, ignoring the fact that influence now, if it's the, the way that the actual mechanic works, but from a conceptual level, your regional officers have buy-in in Boulder. They're part of the political process on your offsite forum, on your Discord, in the community. Whereas it's possible in purely democratic regions that your unelected body of folks who have a lot of endos and have had a lot of endos for a very long time, so they have a lot of influence, if their interests no longer align with the elected community, then they can take their cookies and go home, in theory. Well, that's an interesting question. Certainly the three regions I named, well, especially TSB and TEP, have had more coups than Balder and more successful ones at that. But it's hard to say what exactly that comes down to. You have to remember that TSP and TEP are much larger regions and their security counselors, therefore, or their guardians or whatever you want to call them, have more endorsements and more influence and are harder to get rid of if they go rogue, right? Mm-hmm. So part of it might just be a difference in endocap policy and uh, the realities of having high endorsement guardians or counselors. Uh, whereas Balder, along the lines of the Pacific and the West Pacific, opts for a very low endocap uh, and a small number of uh, regional officers. So it's a little hard to say because a, a, dem- a democratic JCR certainly can have an endocap policy like that if they want to. And maybe that's the difference. It's, it's a little hard to say because there are so many factors that are different beyond just the system of government. All right. That was really interesting. I like breaking down the differences of the different GCRs and your perspective as a Balderite and as the Minister of Stat- Statistics in Balder. Absolutely. So you're ready to take that Balder hat back off? Sure. All right. Hat off. Back to your own world. So how should Europea think about the frontier stronghold debate in the, like, what can we learn from regional officers of game created regions if the frontier stronghold debate is ultimately a question of either transitioning to a gcr light or some founder list ish concept are we well positioned to do that now should we be thinking hard and long about endo caps about changes to that policy about 
influence in the region? Or are these sort of academic questions? Oh, they're, they're very serious uh, and practical questions. There was a transition advisory board uh, during Lyme's presidency toward the end of 2021. And that board did consider all those questions, really, and then some besides that. But I don't think in the end that, that the region came to a consensus. Uh, there was the Senate committee held, I don't remember if it was established that same term or the term after, uh, that also considered these questions. And in the end, I don't think the region really came to any sort of conclusion. Uh, I think that there are lots of options that uh, the region could adopt. The most important thing to me, uh, of course, I do have opinions about what we should adopt mm -hmm. in particular, but the most important thing to me besides that, even if policies I disagree with end up, end up being more popular, it's much more important that we establish what we want to do in advance and are ready on day one to implement it. That's way more important than what we actually decide to do. So along those lines, to me, that sounds like we need to be, and I know that we're going to get into the, the European Intelligence Agency, so I know you're going to love it when I say we need more Senate committees. But maybe we do legitimately need to be to revisit these questions because it doesn't seem to me like we either, and I think, take a step back, that's part of the challenge with a region like Euro, which is it's hard to plan for a date that we don't know. It could be a year, it could be three years, it could be tomorrow, where it won't be tomorrow, where the admins flip the switch and say Frontier Stronghold is here, right? Uh, because we're constantly reevaluating where we are as a region, what our policies are, and as a, something to debate about, Frontier Stronghold, will there ever be a consensus that we can nail down as a region prior to day one? I don't know. Is, is, is that something we can do? It's an open question. I'd like to think we can. I'm not sure that having another Senate committee is the answer. That Senate committee wasn't very successful. The NDN, their report kind of didn't really say anything. It was just, it was, you, you can go read it. it. It was pretty empty. So I'm not sure it accomplished much. I think that really what we need is for some legislation to be proposed by a president with a strong mandate for the policies that he prefers or she prefers, and a robust discussion in the Senate about that legislation, uh, which will then lead to, you know, hopefully some sort of institutional consensus. But of course, that process takes time. The idea right now, I think, is to wait and see. You know, wait and see till we hear news about the update. I don't think that's the wisest thing. Sometimes the NS admins have given notice for changes as little as one to three weeks. That isn't enough time to create and implement the laws necessary for this update. So I really think we should have gotten it out of the way months ago, but we still have, you know, potentially uh, months left to prepare and hopefully we'll see something uh, happen. Yeah, another challenge here is that the way that mandates work in Europea is that every 45 days, sorry, 35 days, we have an election. And that's where a lot of activity comes from. So, you know, if Writing Legend decides to run for re-election, he would have to face, and he wins with a mandate of Frontiers, he would have to face a Senate that didn't have to run on that mandate. So it really takes winning two elections in a row based on a concrete political issue for us to even start uh, that's my perspective, at least from from a current 
the current you know mechanics of how our politics works yeah maybe maybe it really depends uh, on the mood of the senate i think they might be perfectly willing to uh, adopt policies they didn't run on yeah it's a little hard to say that, that that's very fair good segue not the best segue but we'll make it work into intelligence so you are the director of the European Intelligence Agency, the EIA, which is a, a title that you gained when NES stepped back from the role in October 2021. So before we get into any specifics about what's happening right now in the Senate with the Intelligence Agency and the whole Senate Intelligence Committee, can we talk a little bit broad, more broadly about your perspective on the role of intelligence in nation states gameplay and foreign affairs that we were talking about in the first half of this interview. Oh, sure. Intelligence is really one of the oldest, um, oldest parts of nation states, along with regional governments, offsite properties, uh, military gameplay. It's one of the OGs, if you will. Yep. And the role of intelligence has always been gaining an advantage over other powers uh, and specifically an advantage in knowledge we want to know things that others don't want us to know and the reason they don't want us to know it is that by keeping it secret they gain an advantage right mm -hmm. so we want to sweep that advantage out from under their feet and have it for ourselves that's the whole idea behind it Let's look at some examples from European history. Are there any that the agency specifically can point to and say, this is where we gained information or an advantage from an adversary? None that I can say. And I know that's an unsatisfying answer. It's, it's a necessary answer for various reasons. Basically, the thinking is uh, in a lot of the public that you know, it's, it's understandable that I can't share information, but surely I can explain why I don't want to share that information and give specific rather than vague reasons for not sharing it. But often the reasons for not sharing information are just as enlightening as the information itself. Uh, it reveals, or at least hints at, uh, the ways that the information was obtained, hints at where it came from, and, and sometimes when it was obtained, which is very telling information. So all of this is what they call in the real life intelligence community, sources and methods, right? Yeah. This is things that you protect if you are an intelligence officer or if you're the intelligence community, you don't want people to know why you know the Russians have nukes in Cuba until you want to reveal it publicly. You don't want them to know that you have a bug inside of the Kremlin, for example. That's a nice example. Probably one of the examples that's closest to nation states, whereas in a lot of other scenarios, there isn't really a strong analogy. The bug in the Kremlin scenario, there'd be a fair bit of information that you would get from that bug that you wouldn't be able to get anywhere else. It's a unique source. It's, it's the way you get that sort of information. When you know it, how you know it. Yeah, and in nation states, almost all sources are like that. Um, regardless of the specific method, whether it's someone 
you know, defecting to tell you stuff, whether it's a spy, whether it's, you know, there are lots of different ways to learn information. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they just post it in public in places they don't expect you to look. You know, there's, there's lots of different ways to get information. But in nation states, there's often only one avenue, maybe two avenues into a place. If you burn that avenue, then you're screwed, right? There's no, there's no alternative uh, because now they're alert. You know, they're, they're looking around. That's the nature of counter-espionage, counter-intelligence in the real life and in this game is that we check IPs when people come into the region, right? We yeah. have a sense of who is a real player and who is Valk 2.0. Yeah, at least we try to. Well, that's that. I think that's right. That's the purpose of counterintelligence, not always the actual outcome. So I'm sad to hear that we can't get any Information Act CI01 or CI02 declassification exclusively on the pod, but I'll, I'll allow it. In terms of historical Europea, we can definitely point to moments that where Europea was involved in intelligence affairs. I mean, the most classic example is Champagne Jam turning out to be the head of the FRA, Falconius, or, you know, involved in the FRA, Falconius. So that, that's a, a, an example of a moment where Euro was espionaged upon. And he wasn't working alone. There was, um, there was Karpatsk here too, under a pseudonym, Alameo OOFL or something like that. Yeah, some sort of complicated, like, mixture of laughing my ass off and rolling on the floor, but I don't think there was an R there. Anyway, it was a big operation. That wasn't actually, the EIA at the time was fairly primitive. Uh, NES wasn't around yet. Uh, It was kind of changing hats a lot. I think the director might have been Lesson, but I don't know. Maybe there wasn't even a director at that specific moment. Uh, But in any case... The way we found that out was through TNI, because as we now know from the famous Wibblefeet post on the gameplay forum from years ago, TNI had high-level access to the FRA through Wibblefeet, a spy who was planted there uh, years earlier in order to do just that, infiltrate the FRA's cabinet, maybe eventually the Arch-Chancellery, which they did a few times, and just feed uh cabinet information intelligence information constantly and so it was deemed by tni at the time to be a good use of that intelligence to warn europia a little bit obliquely that there might be you know someone around and that's actually an instructive example uh because what they didn't do was say this guy here is falconius and we know this from this evidence uh because that would have blown everything because the evidence in question was, was something that only a few people knew about. And out of those few people, Wibblefeet was the obvious fall guy. Uh, so what they did instead was say, we suspect that some of these new players in your region are FRA spies. And initially, Europia took that as paranoia. It wasn't until later, of course, that Balconius admitted that it was him. And then there was a whole bunch of drama about that that went on for a while. Yeah, so it kind of demonstrates a few of the realities about intelligence and intelligence sharing, where even if something really big happens, there's still very little that can be said directly. That makes this a really politically challenging position, because your successes are private, your ongoing operations 
are private, whether you have ongoing operations are private, your staff is mostly private, your organizational structure is private. The only thing yep. we know is that you are, in theory, the DEIA. Allegedly. So how do you navigate this? Is this something that you think that the DEIA spends too much time on is navigating this political minefield? Or is this just the nature of intelligence in a democratic, quote unquote, society? It's the nature of intelligence everywhere, really. There's no region that does intelligence successfully where there's robust oversight over the intelligence agency, where some civilian body can just request information and have that request met some percentage of the time. Uh, it's just impossible. It's impossible. After Falconius revealed himself to be Falconius, he then became president of Arapea. He did, yeah. So yeah. that question then comes back to how do you navigate what's in the best interest of Arapea with Arapea choosing to elect a former FRA spy as president? At the end of the day, you have to decide whether or not you're going to share evidence with this person and to what extent you're going to cooperate with this person. And at the end of the day, they can always fire you, right? So how does that work? Yeah, that's an interesting scenario. Obviously, I haven't had to, to deal with such a thing yet. Europia at that time in 2010 was a very, I mean, it was a few years old, but the way, the way I would describe it is noob town. Everyone was still very much a, behaving like a noob. Most of us were really young. That was sort of a, a perfect storm for the sort of chaos that FRA intelligence liked to create uh, back when it was still operative. Um, I, take, I take offense to you calling me a noob in 2010. <laughs> I mean, I, I remember you. You you were definitely a noob. I was I was still behaving very much like a noob, uh, mostly because of my age, even though I had been playing for years at that point. For those who do not know, Kazaman and myself actually were in a region together before Aeropea called the Imperium. I basically made a bunch of shitty newspapers. That's what I did. I just made newspapers for like PDFs. Fake hey, it till you make it. And here we are now, you know, 12 years later, making podcasts. Someone, yeah, success. someone break me out of this game, release me from, from my prison. <laughs> so I want to talk now a little bit about other intelligence agencies, because you said, look, there is no direct successful model of sunshine within, between the intelligence agencies and a democratically elected government or a legislature. What is your experience with other intelligence agencies in nation states and less democratic regions? Sure. So I've only been involved in agencies that were in democratic regions. Uh, I was involved in LKE intelligence a couple of different periods. I was involved in TNI intelligence for a while uh, under uh, Alarm Siren. And I was the head of the Commonwealth Intelligence Agency. Now that I say all that, though, I do remember... I was somewhat involved in unknowns intelligence briefly, and that, of course, wasn't a democratic region. And then there's also Contrius, uh, back when it was much more firmly a monarchy than it is now. Although in Contrius, the job was really just citizenship checks, so it wasn't, wasn't really the sort of thing that you're asking about. So anyway, I have experience in regions that are broadly democratic, but in TNI and the LKE, for example, the directors of those agencies 
were given a lot of trust and they really only answered to the monarchies because those regions uh, were both constitutional monarchies. So there, there really isn't a strong analogy with the European situation, but there wasn't really a demand most of the time for democratic accountability, occasional parliamentary uproars over such and such, but, but usually it didn't stick, right? It was occasional. It wasn't this long-standing issue the way it is in Europa. Yeah, so I'm not sure how that experience translates over per se, and maybe it doesn't. Uh, maybe there's no way to make that analogy strong. But Europa, Europa is interesting in that its intelligence service is kind of a global name. Like everyone knows about the European Intelligence Agency, if they're at all clued into that aspect of the game. And yet, at home, it's a bit of a pariah or a political, uh, political dynamite or hot potato, right? Mm -hmm. So in terms of the EIA being having a better brand name than the Ministry of Pod does, which seems hard, but I will take your word for it. How for much, now. For, for, now. <laughs> for now. How much of this also is because... NES ran the EIA for how many years? Was it nine, 10 years almost? Uh, I was 11, I think. 11 years. I went back and I was reading through this, uh, your October 2021 confirmation thread when NES had stepped back. President Lyme at the time nominated you. How much of this brand name is just NES's whisper network? Because that is mentioned in the thread as, you know, this is what he did really well. He had these connections and relationships that he was able to use in order to benefit Euro. Would you agree with that sentiment that that's where the brand name comes from? Or do you think that, can you even say whether the Kazaman directorship has improved the brand? Uh, I don't think I've improved the brand. I think I've pretty much stayed the course, providing very much the same sort of service and leadership that NES did during his tenure. Hopefully, uh, hopefully I can continue that. In terms of NES's legacy, he is definitely one of the top three, maybe even the best intelligence uh, officer in the entire game, like in the entire history of the game, without question. Uh, I'd probably say he's also one of the most talented and successful players, period, in the game. I think that in large part, the EA, EIA became successful because it was led by NES for so long. That's, that's not really in question. I like to think I, can, I, have a, I know a thing or two, uh, and I've been doing well so far. It's interesting to me how Europia discusses institutions, because it seems that either they view something as a one-man show or they see it as a totally decentralized system that anybody can be, anybody could run. It, it runs itself almost as long as there's, there's some sort of manpower. Uh, in reality, I think everything is kind of in the middle of that. And the EIA is no exception. Um, I think most institutions in nation states, if pressed, could be run by one person as long as there's staff, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, underneath them to to boss around because this is a you know a social name and if, if it's just one person period then you don't have a region let alone a government but i think most nation states institutions are like that there's nothing that's really too big for one person to handle unless of course it's the entire region itself 
But in speaking of institutions, most institutions can be handled by a person. Speaking of this institution, the argument, maybe we could run the EIA with one person, but you know, it takes a village to raise some intelligence. I was thinking about the transition from NES to yourself. And, you know, I'm not saying let's get rid of Kazvan today, but part of, in my mind, the question of how you would create an intelligence agency and how you ensure that there are people who can lead this agency, that it's not just a one-man show forever, because we thought that NES would be the DEIA forever, and then until he wasn't. Oh, yeah, yeah. Off the top of your mind... No, so that's where I say it's it's always in the middle. Do you think that there are people who could do your job, maybe not as effectively, but could succeed as DEIA director? In- yeah, in the long term, long term, there are certainly people. And there is, um, an, is there a mentorship might be the wrong word. But... No, it's, I think it's the correct word. Okay, then mentorship process. Yeah, no, so, I, and I think it works that way, not just in intelligence, but really in any aspect of the game. The best model of long-term transition and leadership in nation states is one-on-one mentorship, where someone who's very experienced um, allows someone to shadow them over time and discuss their work, and then eventually they know the ropes well enough that they can take over. And Arapea has that formally with the vice presidency, or at least that's the most natural way that vice presidents are mentored by presidents. That's for a very yeah. short period of time. That's a 70-day term. So do you think that the DEIA, with the, the length of your term, gives you the flexibility you need to train up staff or assistant directors or whatever the hell you want to call your minions? Yeah, although that isn't really the reason for the term length. Right, of course. Yeah. yeah, I think the main reason is just you don't want it to be a constant. The job, the job involves you know quite a bit of work in the background, and you don't want to constantly have Senate hearings every term. It's just a lot. That's how I feel so about I think the, that's EBC. the main reason. That's how I feel about the EBC, and yet here we are. Well, you know, you promised that you wouldn't uh, that you wouldn't talk about privatizations, though. So. <laughs> I don't know. If you I, want to I, break that? I, I lied. I lied. All right. So, <laughs> I want to jump in a little bit here and talk about because there's something you mentioned earlier that I want to drill down on a little bit more. You said there's often only one or two avenues or, or ways into the room where yeah. let's say there's a just, smoke just because regions are regions are so tight knit yes like in in reality most regions are like 10 to 50 people and there are very few ways to get into a group of that small so i guess let's let's think about this two ways within euro are you comfortable talking about what those rooms are is it the eaac oh yeah i mean basically any institution where new members can work their way up to, that's that's a target. So that EAAC, definitely a target. The presidency? Yeah, yeah, definitely. If you know, It's a long shot. Um, and I don't think that there's like a, a hungry waiting mob out there of, of intelligence agents, you know, ready to vie for the presidency but certainly if somebody thought it was viable 
and they were confident that they had the time over a couple of years to work toward that, I, I don't see why not. Remember the Wibblefee operation. That lasted years, right? But part of it is you need payoff, right? You're not going to invest all of your time to become president when it turns out that potentially there's a lot of checks and balances in Euro, so you can't enact policy. Perhaps the information you find out you could more easily get from lower-hanging fruit elsewhere. Would you push back against that characterization? It really depends. You can have lots of different objectives behind, uh, besides just getting certain information. Now, the fact that the presidency is so hard to get and doesn't last very long could be a reason to pursue something else, for sure. All right, so we, talk, we covered Euro and how Kazman would attempt to destroy European democracy. So <laughs> now that we've looked at that, let's turn our heads to a hypothetical region, and there's a smoke-filled room. When, okay. you, when you say that there are avenues into that room, is that a person in the room sometimes? Uh, sure, or you can look through a window. What would be uh, an example of a window? Let's look. Do we have any historical examples we can use? Because I think that sometimes allows for us to be more open when we talk about intelligence and when we actually point to things that, we, that have already happened. So we know that they're, for example, masking errors. What happens if someone masks you wrong on Discord? I guess you're in the room, but you're in the room on accident. I mean, you can't rely on that. But if it happens, then you just, you know, don't tell them. <laughs> you just start screenshotting everything. I guess. I mean, it depends. I don't know. That's that's not a really good example, because when would that... You can't rely on somebody masking you improperly. Okay, so let's um, think about more reliable tactics. Could it be something like... So I remember when when we used to use Skype as our main method of communication... There was a real big fear that went around for a little bit that there was a out of character security vulnerability with the Skype system where you could gather the IP log of someone that you were having a conversation with without their permission. I just remember that being something that people were like genuinely freaking out about across nation states because everybody was using Skype at the time. Yeah. Um, well, that, that's been a thing in nation states uh, before that as well. People would set up. Uh, so obviously, if you join a forum or even just go on as a guest, people can see your IP if they're an admin. Uh, but people used to set up websites where it looked like, you know, an innocuous wiki about a nation states thing. But actually, it was logging your IP and personal information. So that's, that's actually been a, an issue in the game since, I would imagine, since the beginning. So that's an example of how you would harvest IP addresses that you could then use to find out if Alconius is your president or not. Oh, yeah. So, like, IP sharing is a controversial but very ubiquitous aspect of the game. It's not as openly talked about anymore, but people still do it all the time. Whether it's admin teams or intelligence services. And, oh, by the way, in most major regions... There's no difference. The head of the intelligence service is often an administrator or the chief administrator in many regions. Uh, Europia is distinct in that it has this, not, well, it isn't completely unique, but it's somewhat distinct in that it has this completely independent administrative body mm -hmm. uh, that tries to stay out of gameplay, you know, to the extent that it can. But yeah, IP sharing, uh, very common. So do we have any other examples that you want to provide of windows or ways to get into the room or ways to bug the room? 
or is this all that the com- that the director is comfortable sharing in a public venue? I mean, I've already said a lot. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I, I, this is really an unprecedented interview in some ways. I mean, uh, the, the, the pod only brings the, the best content to its listeners and probably to our foreign listeners who are definitely going to be listening to this episode. <laughs> well, yeah. If they made it this far, I will say I can share with you the retention rates because that is one thing that podcasting tools allow us to do is to see when people listen to certain content so we can i can tell you right away like sorry like five people listen to this fucking show and all of them stop listening after the first 10 minutes you're totally good you could have said that and nobody would have ever noticed <laughs> i don't know i've listened the what the shows i've listened to i listened the whole way through i'll say that well actually i think that's one thing that's interesting talking about being in the room as we do more voice chat in nation states and more dynamic conversations like there is just so much content to sift through right like yeah there, there's absolutely nuggets of information that you could get from like to understand the european political dynamics from from listening to the ministry of pod that you might not pick up if you're just on our euro chat or on the forum so is it great that i am making life more difficult for foreign adversaries by just creating so much content I don't know if you're if it's if it's more difficult. The most difficult situation is where it's complete silence and you have no idea what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, having an, like a deluge of information from several sources or streams is very hard to manage, but it's kind of like suffering from success in a way. Yeah. Um, it's like I have all these. I have like. Five billion chocolate bars. Oh, no, I have to eat them all now. What am I going to do, right? That's kind of what it's like, whereas the alternative is having no food or something. But yeah, it is, it's a kind of a modern feature of intelligence that there are so many places, primarily because of Discord, mm-hmm. uh, that you have to look at constantly. And it is a lot of work, for sure. And that's something that NES commented on in some of his past uh, confirmation hearings few years ago that sounds like it would be i think it's a lot of work to read all the discord messages hell i don't even have to understand what they're saying i just got to scroll to the bottom and it's a lot of work yeah i mean if you're if you're gone if you're offline long enough scrolling can be a lot overall i don't know that the intel game has changed that much the like every time that there's a new platform or new software that's introduced to the game you kind of have to adapt a little bit and discord obviously uh, was a game changer in some ways, and that had effects on intelligence just as it did on every other aspect of the game. But the basic thinking, basic methods, basic objectives, that hasn't really changed. Uh, you still want to learn information that people would rather you didn't know. The way you go about that is more or less the same as it has been for years. Because ultimately, this is a social political game. Mm -hmm. And so you exploit the social and political mechanisms or institutions in the game. Uh, Software is kind of more like a medium than than a vehicle for that. I don't know. Maybe maybe those concepts are too similar. But hopefully you understand what I mean. No, I think that that is interesting. It is interesting to chat about how technology has changed over time because we have been playing this game when I used to have your MSN number. And then yeah. you friended me on Facebook so that you could find out that I wasn't a spy. 
I don't think that was why. But... Hey, you never know with these DEIA guys. You gotta just, you gotta make sure. So yeah. before we wrap up, I have one more question for you because I just have to ask, because if I don't ask my listeners, my dedicated 15 listeners are going to be very mad at me. I want to quickly turn to the resolution 008, which is, you know, as you know, and for listeners who may or may not know, the new Senate Intelligence Committee resolution and Picto, you, who you asked to be, you, you tapped him to be the chair. Tell me, stop me if I'm, anything I'm saying is wrong or inaccurate if you have disagreements with anything, where you asked Picto to be the chair of the committee as resolution 005, which was a previous agreement that the previous Senate had set up as the cooperative understanding of the relationship and that there were going to be two other members of the committee, Lowland Flies and Cove. McIntyre took issue with the size and the manner in which the committee was selected. So I just want to ask you from your perspective about how tenable it is to have this committee, right? Like, first of all, is this committee helpful? Do you think it's helpful for the Senate? Are you sharing more than zero with more than zero? Yeah, sure. How much info? Like, are we, do you think that Aeropans are actually being serviced by this relationship that you have set up with previous Senates? The understanding that I've had with the two previous iterations of the committee was that I'm here and you can talk to me whenever you like. I really, I really want to leave any discussions about reform or, or whatever with the Senate. The Senate can initiate that if they want to. Mm-hmm. I will say that the previous two committees opted not to initiate those sorts of conversations, although they discussed other things with me. You mean re- they did not initiate reform conversations with you? Yeah, they, they, didn't, they didn't bother to initiate those sorts of discussions. Okay. Probably they had other things on their mind, the two previous Senates, you know, were reasonably busy. Reasonably. I, I think that some would take her, uh, disagreement to your characterization, but that's fine. So you also were sharing some more than zero amounts of intelligence or information with those committees? Uh, it's, it's a little bit hard to classify, like, how should I put this? If the idea is like I'm giving them laws or whatever, then no. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not giving them logs. Mm-hmm. I'm not like sharing screenshots and stuff. Sure, uh, like, yeah, raw, I do that with hardly any. Right? Raw data, I think, would be inappropriate to be sharing. You know, yeah. in, in that in that scenario. But I've been asked about my thoughts or impressions on certain things and responded. Yeah. In a new situation, ignoring ignoring reform for the moment, you mentioned that the makeup of the committee is important for you to be able to address and just to have these conversations in an open way. Do you think that there's membership that would prevent you from having a, an appropriate, a, a healthy relationship with the Senate Intelligence Committee? Uh, not, not about this. Like Senate, in, in not, theory? Not in theory. Yeah. Like what's the worst case scenario and where, where do we land with oh. this particular example. Well, the worst case scenario is that... The FRA elects Falk to the Senate? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, and that sounds ridiculous. It does. And it sounds paranoid, and it kind of is. But it's also realistic in the long term, you know? That has happened, and it hasn't just happened in Europia. It's, uh, 
it's a relatively common phenomenon given how much work it involves. And also the way that our Senate, like our current way that we elect senators is you don't even need 50% of the vote to become a senator. So it's not like, it's yeah. like there's multiple checks that our Senate has that make it, if anything, easier to get onto. But then of course you have to get on the committee, which is a whole, if the Senate's allowed to select its own membership onto the committee, your perspective is that is not necessarily, but could be a non a non-starter if Falconius ends up back on the Senate Intelligence Committee. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, basically. Now, from my perspective, in this Senate, as I've said in public already, uh, or yeah, as I think it was on the Senate floor that I said this, mm-hmm. either that or the Grand Hall. Uh, I don't have any security concerns. I don't think that any of the current senators are are you know spying or looking to sabotage um, Europia. Uh, my concern is more that I don't want any aspect of the EIA or access to it to be something that someone can run for in public. I don't want access to me to be something that somebody can run. demand in public and get, you know. And, and this is somewhat why I was apprehensive about McIntyre's actions. It wasn't that I think he's going to leak things. It was that the way he went about trying to get membership, now, it, it, it did deliberately uh, undermine the consensus from prior terms, partly because, uh, as he said in the radio interview, he wasn't completely aware of what it was. He thought that there was some more background to it or something. And as Lowen said, I think that there was, um, in the aftermath, some misinterpretations from various directions about uh, people's impressions of initial reactions to that, which, you know, it happens. But the bottom line for me is, if this committee is going to be substantive, and it can be if they, if they want it to be, we can work that out. If, but if this committee is going to be substantive, then it can't be the sort of thing that somebody can work their way up to over time through some sort of meritocratic process, the way that we let people become ministers that way. Uh, the EIA cannot be that sort of institution. It's, it's simply impossible. And this is a fundamental tension here because you say, I don't want people to be able to run to have access to me. And yet right. your relationship with the president is ultimately one where you are interacting with someone who ran and gets access to you. Yeah, ultimately I'm a servant of the Republic, right? And the Republic is headed by the president. And so, yeah, in a sense, somebody can run for president to get access. But in practice, the, the president isn't like, there's no EIA forum, you know, the way that there used to be, where every intelligence agency used to have its own forum and the government would interact with it there, and there'd be staff in the forum, and, you know, it's just a leaky mess. So that, that doesn't exist anymore, hasn't existed for a long time. Mm-hmm. So in practice, like, the president's access to the EIA is DMs with me, right? Yes. They ask me about some policy thing. I'll inform them about things. You know, that's, that's the sort of thing. If there's a security threat, you know, I'll tell them as, as required by law. Uh, and I'll, if they ask for my advice on how to respond to it, then I'll, I'll give my advice. 
you know, that's the sort of access the president has. And of course, um, that's more access than literally everyone else. Nobody else has that sort of access. It's privileged to the presidency, um, which is the whole reason for my office. Right. But the, I, nobody really has all the links in the chain other than myself as director. That's my job. My job is to manage all of these different ways in which I obtain information and manage the people involved in that and funnel that information to the president and doing all of that while not compromising any of that operation. That sounds really straightforward. When you put it like that, yeah. It's all on one page. Well, Director Kazaman, Minister of Statistics Kazaman, Kazaman the Airplane Citizen, thank you so much for really laying out where you see our foreign affairs and in the second half of the show, being very patient with me and also being very helpful to our audience and really breaking down intelligence in nation states and specifically Arapea. Thanks again for coming on the Ministry of Pot. Thanks for having me. All right, have a good night. You too. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Ministry of Pod. I'm PH Dre. If you want to check out more information about the Ministry of Pod, we now have a brand new dispatch that you can upvote on the nation state's website. Thanks for tuning in to learn about Kazaman's thoughts on foreign affairs and his experience as the director of European Intelligence Agency. Special thanks to all of our foreign listeners who may be listening to the Ministry of Pod for the first time. If you're still listening, check out our other episodes. Thanks again, everybody. Have a good night.